0: In the Civil Rights Act of 1968, America does move forward. And the bell of freedom rings out a little louder. Hi there. This is A Little Louder, a podcast for wonks, housers, and rabble rousers, where we talk about fair housing, community development, and how we can use these issues to build people power and work toward equity and justice. I'm Michael D. Planned. So we're about at the midway point at the Texas legislature, maybe a little after that. So we are back in the studio with Ben Martin, our research director here at Texas Housers. Hey,
1: Michael. I am happy to say that we are farther than the midway point. We have about
0: six weeks left, give or take. I bet you're very happy to be... (laughs) almost done because it's quite a beast the, the legislative session once bills are starting to be
1: heard and uh, things are going onto the floor of the house and the senate it's kind of like i don't know if you imagine playing dodgeball and everyone's ganging up on you and you're being
0: hit by 14 oh, balls no. at once you know everyone will take a nice break i'm i'm sure you're <laughs> already looking at june packing away a swimsuit <laughs> looking to get somewhere on a beach i imagine or a hike whatever version of whatever your beach is i'm sure you're ready i have my flight booked already i'm going to go stare at some trees that sounds perfect but you know for now we're still sort of in the trenches so i figured that this would be a really good opportunity to review some of the things that we have been tracking and give some updates on some major bills regarding housing so in that spirit let's just go ahead and get right to it i think first there are some really major bills that I know that Housers has been really stuck to, and this is regarding preemption. So let's go ahead and talk about a few bills. I know, of course, of HB 2035, that is regarding preempting local entities from regulating evictions. But there are some other preemption bills that we also have been really tracking as well, Ben. Isn't that correct?
1: Yeah. So. Going into this session, one of Hauser's biggest priorities was eviction prevention. Coming out of the pandemic, we had more protections and more funding to help prevent evictions and the harms of evictions for low-income people than ever before. But those protections and that funding kind of gone away. So this is really the legislature's opportunity to put some of that into law. The pandemic, in some ways, was actually a blueprint for how to stop unnecessary evictions and so you see bills kind of cutting in both directions on that and the bill you just mentioned house bill 2035 and its senate companion senate bill 986 they, well, these are bad bills these would preempt local governments ability to regulate evictions it, in particular it would preempt local governments ability to provide tenants with a opportunity to cure period which is a, a number of days that a tenant can pay their back rent before a formal eviction is filed in contrast to that house bill 673 would provide a uniform statewide uh, five-day opportunity to cure. So that's a bill that would actually take that protection and move it up to the state level and provide a baseline five days for tenants to pay their back rent. And we are happy to report that House Bill 673, the statewide opportunity to cure bill, had a hearing in committee yesterday and seem to receive a favorable response from the House Business and Industry Committee. House Bill 2035, which is the eviction preemption bill, still in committee. And it's really important at this moment that either that bill, uh, there's you know, maintained pressure to keep that bill in committee, or if it has to pass out of committee and it has the votes, uh, statewide opportunity to cure is amended onto that bill. I think it would be very concerning if that bill passed out of committee, separate from the statewide cure, because there would be just too many opportunities for, you know, in the Senate, for instance, to pass the bad preemption bill, stop the good statewide cure bill.
0: If we're looking for an amendment, is it in the uh, bad version of that bill, 2035? How many are we looking to amend there?
1: Well, the statewide opportunity to cure bill originally read uh, seven days, that tenants have seven days to pay their back rent. That was negotiated down by the bill's author and actually the author of the eviction preemption bill to a five-day opportunity to cure. We really hoped for seven days opportunity to cure. We still support statewide care at five days. Five days is better than no days. To answer your question, if statewide care were amended onto the eviction preemption bill, again, our hope would be for seven days or longer. Um, likely at this point, it would be five days to
0: match the statewide care bill. So what is your confidence level that something like 2035 could be amended?
1: Uh, stopped or amended? I would just comment that everything is still in play. This is a live issue and everything right now is in committee in house business and industry. And if you want to support House Bill 673, or if you want to reach out to express your concerns about eviction preemption, the members of house business and industry are folks who need to hear from you right now.
0: Now... 2035 is not the only preemption bill. There's a larger, broader preemption bill that has a lot of folks in the housing, affordable housing space concerned. Did you want to share a little bit about that?
1: Preemption of local government authority is a tactic that conservatives in the legislature have used um, for a few sessions now, but House Bill 2127 and Senate Bill 814 are kind of the the next level of escalation in preemption, uh, they introduce the concept of field preemption, and what that means is there's um, areas of of state code. So uh, if you look at the, the if you look at state law, it's broken up into a bunch of different topic areas. So you have the local government code, the labor code, the uh, property code, etc. And what the field preemption bill, what these bills do, is They state that whereas traditionally, if state statute, if these state codes are silent on an issue, then local governments may regulate those issues as they see fit. These bills change that and they preempt the entire code. They basically say if the state codes, if state statute is silent on an issue, local governments must presume that they may not
0: regulate those issues. So this really endangers, obviously, some of the things that a lot of cities like Houston um, have accomplished with uh, right to counsel and what they continue to pursue. San Antonio pursuing uh, their tenant bill rights there. All of those things that have already been established could be endangered by this bill.
1: Well, it's unclear. It depends on if you could make a legal argument that you can find a justification for local governments pursuing those activities in statute, but that's going to have to be adjudicated. And basically, you can sue your local government to say that they have harmed you in some way through a local regulation that is not backed up by state statute, and it would be up to the courts to decide whether that was valid or not. And so I think the really scary thing about this bill is that there's a huge question mark about what it would and would not preempt. What it's clear it would do is it would have a chilling effect on local leaders, uh, both elected and administrative leaders, interest in being innovative in their strategies to affect issues, including and beyond low-income housing. Because if there is a threat that they're going to be sued, for pursuing these activities, they might think twice about it if they can't find explicit justification for that activity in state statute.
0: So to just clarify, it wouldn't just be a state entity or even a city or county that would be liable. It's like individuals.
1: Qualified immunity is waived by this bill. So you could potentially be personally liable for harms if the court finds that the person who's suing. I mean, the problem with this is, again, we just don't know exactly what this bill is going to do. We know that it might have a behavioral effect, like it will impact the behavior of local leaders. But how the courts are going to weigh in on this is a is a huge question mark. If they weigh in fairly aggressively and really overly restrict local government's ability to regulate some of these activities. What you're going to wind up with is you're going to wind up with the legislature being solely responsible for addressing some of these issues that would really be better addressed at the local level by leaders who are kind of in the trenches with their communities. The legislature only meets every two years, and so this would put an incredible amount of additional pressure to address these issues in a very short window of time that's already very constrained. And again, it's just very unpredictable. So we don't know in two years if this bill were to pass into law. We don't know what issues the legislature then would be addressing two years from now to try to fix the problem of their own creation.
0: I I recall... Uh, watching some of your testimony at the Capitol and there was a concern, at least from the author of HB 2035, Reps Lawson, she mentioned about like a concern over a patchwork of laws and that, you know, one person could be evicted in what, uh, what if they were to live in a different county in a neighboring city and, and what would take precedent. But it seems as if At least to me, it seems as if these cities have been getting along just fine uh, managing these kinds of issues for years. There haven't been any major pauses in evictions. In fact, evictions have chugged along. That train has moved very quickly. So I'm struggling to see what the concern is about how evictions will somehow be held up.
1: Well, and to clarify, the field preemption bill is is far, far broader than just evictions and far, yeah. far broader than just housing. So I, I do want to make sure that we're clear on the distinction between those two, those two bills. To the point on evictions, yes, absolutely. The idea that landlords are struggling to navigate a patchwork of local regulation is just very silly. There's only three jurisdictions in the entire state that have passed opportunity to cure laws. Two of those are temporary and tied to the pandemic. So we're talking about one permanent ordinance in the entire state. doesn't seem that difficult to navigate to me. The concern for the, the broader bill, regarding the broader bill, yeah, a patchwork of regulation, local regulation and local response to local issues is just kind of how local government works in the United States. Home rule cities are a thing. We've done this for generations. It's the most efficient way to get outcomes that are narrowly tailored to the community that they're meant for. I just have a hard time wrapping my head around the problems that we're going to create by removing the local authority and that presumption
0: of local authority. But sort of speaking of how things have worked pretty efficiently through JP courts and through the local level, there is a bill that weirdly... It wants to augment that process to make things perhaps more arduous for renters on the local level as well?
1: Yeah, I think you're referring to House Bill 3952. Basically, it says that instead of justice of the peace courts having jurisdiction over evictions, that jurisdiction over evictions will now be shared between justice of the peace courts and county courts. Let me interpret what that means. If you're a landlord and you're trying to evict a tenant, and you go to court and you have a justice of the peace who is trying to enforce the law and says, hey, you didn't file this right or you didn't follow the right steps. Um, As a landlord, you're annoyed because you're, you're saying, I just want to get this tenant out of here. This now gives you the option of picking your court. So, if you don't like that one that a JP is enforcing the law, you can say, All right, well, I'm just going to pick up and take my case to the county court because that judge will just do what I say, basically. So, this really opens up the idea of court shopping where you can pick the judge that you think is going to give you the most favorable outcome and take your case there. Um, this is obviously bad for tenants' rights in the courtroom and making sure that tenants have a fair shake in eviction proceedings.
0: Let's talk about some tenant protections when it comes to vouchers. Uh, There's a few bills in the House that have to do with source of income discrimination or uh, other sort of voucher protections. What are some of the updates on these bills? I'll start out by talking about House Bill
1: 1193. This bill is in response to the situation up in Denton County last year where in a place called Providence Village, the homeowners association there is kind of a perfect overlap of the city of Providence Village. And the homeowners association board voted that landlords could no longer choose to rent to voucher holders. So the eviction of existing voucher holders in Providence Village Basically, resulted in the eviction of, I I believe the statistic is like 93% of non white people living in Providence Village. So, this creates a huge fair housing issue um, for them, in addition to just being unfair to voucher holders in general. This got a lot of bad press last year. And so, this bill, 1193, was filed to prevent. HOAs from regulating whether landlords can choose to rent to voucher holders or not. Happily, this bill uh, was heard in committee and really didn't have any opposition. So we're very hopeful that this bill can move through. We're going to be continuing to track it through the rest of session to ensure that if there is a, an avenue for this to pass and become law, that it does so. Because, you know, the Providence Village situation just really illustrated how unfair that is of HOAs, and also how discriminatory it is. Another bill on source of income protection, so protection for voucher holders, as a reminder, state law in Texas says that cities cannot choose to protect source of income, protect against source of income discrimination. Basically, cities can't tell landlords that they're not allowed to discriminate against voucher holders. There is a carve-out, though. Cities can choose to pass a law that says that landlords cannot discriminate against veterans if they're voucher holders. And there's a bill, House Bill 2996, that would expand that carve out so that cities could elect to protect against source of income discrimination, voucher discrimination for two new groups. That would be survivors of domestic violence and current and former foster youth up to the age of 26. So that bill did receive a hearing in committee. And uh, my understanding is that right now the bill author is attempting to generate support for that committee to pass that out and get a hearing on the House floor. That is in the House Urban Affairs Committee. So if you're interested in that topic and want to reach out to House Urban Affairs Committee members and let them know that you want the house bill 2996 to come up for a favorable vote
0: communities that are experiencing housing instability like this and instability in many parts of their lives like domestic violence survivors foster youth former foster youth it just uh, it just confounds me that we have to fight so hard to protect these communities when it should be just understood That if you are someone who is trying to escape domestic violence or trying to find stability outside of the foster system, that there is such a roadblocked path for you. And, you know, this can be said of of so many micro communities within the broader low income community, but it just is really just personally shocking always that that there is such a fight that has to be had uh, for communities like this to just have a stable place to live we know plenty of people at organizations who advocate for these folks and you know they work very hard to make sure that they have all the things that they need to live a dignified life but it just is it's just often very, very shocking to me that there is such a fight uh, to get these people what they need.
1: It's shocking that there's a fight to deny housing on the basis of source of income for folks like survivors of domestic violence or foster youth. But it should also be shocking to us that Anybody can be discriminated against Absolutely. because they have a voucher. There are so many myths about voucher holders, about what they do, harm or crime that they bring to communities that they move into, which are just not true and have been proven by research over and over again to not be true. And the benefit of expanding neighborhood choice to low-income people through the voucher program would be so much more meaningful if landlords, especially landlords in you know, job-rich neighborhoods, high opportunity neighborhoods with good schools couldn't just discriminate against them because they have a voucher. You know, I I don't know. I think this is really just sort of ridiculous. We need statewide or nationwide source of income protection, voucher protection. But until we can get there, we are very supportive of attempts to protect source of income, especially for folks who have dealt with profound harms and challenges.
0: Right. I mean, you look at the Biden administration, they have talked about source of income protection as a goal of theirs. And, you know, as we wait for them to execute that on a nationwide level, there are states that are contemporary with Texas, like Oklahoma, like Virginia, like North Dakota. These are places that are similar in the governmental makeup. They are red states, yet they have this protection for the people who use vouchers who are, by and large, low-income people. There is no reason why a state like Texas can't have this as well. Another reality that renters have to face in Texas is that they ultimately are not as valued as homeowners, even though they pay taxes just like homeowners. This is something that Housers has really been pushing in terms of the budget and funding aspect in the legislature. So Ben, why don't you let us know how that aspect of legislature is going?
1: If you've been reading the news about the Texas legislative session in 2023, you have probably seen some articles about the budget and the budget surplus. The state of Texas has a historic budget surplus this year, and they're trying to figure out what to do with an unexpected extra $32-plus billion. In addition to that, they still had a remaining $5 billion in American Rescue Plan funds that they could make decisions on what to spend that on. Those funds are a little bit more restricted, but still there's a lot that they can use them on. And a huge part of this conversation, maybe the dominant aspect of this conversation, has been how to spend this money to reduce cost burden for Homeowners and property owners. And um, this is just, you know, ridiculous from the start. We have, you know, there's nothing wrong with helping cost burdened homeowners, but we know that renters are struggling equally or more so than homeowners and are more housing unstable, more likely to lose housing stability or lose housing, period, than homeowners are. My point being just that the idea that this surplus should be used to benefit homeowners and property owners and not renters is unconscionable. And so just to put kind of dollar amounts on this, we're hearing proposals coming out of the House of Representatives upward of $15 billion with a B for homeowner and property owner relief and $0 to benefit renters. Um, In the Senate, they have a slightly different strategy, but also billions of dollars towards homeowner relief and $0 to the approximately 38% of Texas households that are renter households. We should all be furious about this. An awesome, excellent coalition of housing folks from across the state came together to speak to legislators, especially on the House side, to try to get them to amend, especially the use of those ARPA dollars to benefit renters. Those, Those ARPA dollars, by the way, are explicitly intended for those kind of purposes. If you look at the Treasury guidelines for how to spend those, spending on emergency rental assistance and the production of low-income, income-restricted housing are explicit, authorized, and encouraged uses for those funds. But as both the general appropriations bills and the special appropriations bills, supplemental appropriations bills that contain the ARPA funds, moved through their respective House and Senate committees and then onto the floor, any attempts to get money to to support renters, for direct support for renters into those bills, unfortunately, have failed thus far. When the House floor debated the budget, Representative Bryant from Dallas attempted an amendment that would provide $200 million, which honestly would have been a drop in the bucket compared to need, but $200 million for renters. That amendment was shot down on a point of order by Representative Briscoe Kane while he was wearing a fake mustache just to show how unseriously he took the issue of helping renters in Texas. This is something that we should all be really upset about. I'm pretty worked up about this. The idea that we had a one-time historic budget surplus, we were dealing with almost $40 billion and that $0 of those funds would go to relief for renters
0: is unconscionable to me. Ben, this is the kind of thing that really should fire people up. It should really make renters understand that they are not passively living in a rental unit. I feel like there's a misunderstanding that when you're a homeowner, you have all these responsibilities, right? It's more of an active front of mind idea that when you're a homeowner, oh, I I pay taxes on the home. I have all these responsibilities to fix the home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when people are renters, they just think, oh, I just pay the rent. But you are paying for those repairs. You are paying for all those things. They're included in your rent. You, as a renter, you are a sort of class that is unprotected in Texas. You are not represented and... Certainly, if you are a low-income renter, you are still paying for all these things, but you are in a situation that is less likely to receive the resources that you need. You are less likely to live in a place where you're allowed to organize if something goes wrong. You are less likely to cure rent if you're short on rent for a month. Like, all of these protections that are directly affecting you they don't exist because the people who are making these laws the people who have the opportunity to extend resources to you do not take you seriously they do not think of you as a powerful collective they just think of them as the people who pay rent and if you think of yourself as the just the person who pays rent then you're never gonna have rights it's just i i don't want to sound so blunt but There has to be an awakening for tenants, for renters, for them to understand that we have to come together as a collective to have some sort of representation in our sort of leadership and where laws are made. And if we don't, then things will just stay the same. So it really is upon renters to realize being a renter. It's not a passive thing. It has to be an active thing.
1: You don't have to be an expert to understand how ridiculous it is that the legislature would not fund direct relief to renters with a single dollar while giving billions of dollars to homeowners. If you just, like, asked a renter on the street who's struggling more, a renter or a homeowner, it the, the answer is laughably obvious. It is laughably obvious. So it should be sobering. To all renters, to know that your state leaders have no interest in supporting you whatsoever. Almost forty percent of the state, no interest in supporting you whatsoever. They got forty billion dollars to play with, and their first thought was, "How can we help homeowners?" Because we care about them.
0: Well, you know, I I, I hate to to end the podcast on such a. Well, you know, I don't think it's a bleak outlook. I think it's a call to action. It's less people know that they need to fire up. And, you know, how that is executed, we'll see what the best, most effective way of that could be. But certainly advocating for protections for renters or resources for renters within your local sphere or statewide representation is always like a good place to start. But another place to start is stay tuned to this podcast and stay tuned to Texas Housers. We're always going to put out, what can the average person do? What can the everyday person do? Join us in in our fight for low-income households.
1: And Michael, the the legislature is still in session. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't reached out to your legislators yet to let them know that you support tenants' rights and low-income housing, It's not over yet. You still have time to do so. You can pick up the phone or send an email right now. We invite you to be a part of the movement. And it just happens by changing one mind at a time.
0: Phone calls are always great. Letters are great. Trust me. If you get a phone call with somebody and you tell them that you care about renter's rights, you care about some of the things that we've talked about, I think they would be surprised. But they would listen because they... They pay people to sit in their office and listen to this and report back. So it's always good to call or write a letter or email. Well, with that, I think we're going to go ahead and call this episode. But again, Ben, thank you so much for giving us updates on how things are going at the sort of, I would say, third quarter of the ledge. We'll just put it that way to put it in a sports reference, I guess. (laughs) But the game's not over yet, so we're still there. still plenty, plenty of clock left. Uh, but yeah, thank you as always for joining us, Ben.
1: Thank you. If I got the rules of dodgeball wrong at the beginning of this podcast, don't email me.
0: <laughs> I don't know if we have any super dodgeball fans, but you know what? Yeah, please email him. He's Ben at Texas House. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's going to do it for this episode of A Little Louder. As always, J.T. Mac will play us out. Bye for now.